You're listening to another episode of the Four Quadrant Podcast, and it is my joy today to be joined by Catherine Waterston. How are you doing? I am so much better now than I've been all day. This is like the calmest moment in a very manic day, so it's great to be here. Well, I'm glad you're here, uh, and I'm glad to talk uh, about your movie, um, The World to Come, uh, which I was lucky to see uh, last September, virtually, uh, when it debuted at, at Venice. Um, and, and congratulations on the movie. How did you see it? What kind of screen? I mean, I'll be honest. I saw it oh, on my God. laptop. Oh, God. I know, but I cried at the end. Oh, well, that's good. That's so, a very good sign. If, if you can cry on a laptop, that's promising. <laughs> no, no I, I, and honestly, I, 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 it was one of my favorite movies uh, of last year. And um, uh, I say that genuinely, not just because you're on the podcast. Because actually, I wanted to help support the movie and talk to talk to you about it because I, I did love it so much. Um, well, thank you so much. With these small films, you know, that kind of support really means a lot because you know it's so much harder to get the word out about the small films. Um, but the reason why I asked you how you watched it was because I was so impressed with Mona when I saw it on the big screen and I saw that she really was a filmmaker who considers the cinematic experience when she makes a film. So, you know, I felt for her so much this year that she made a film that's meant to be seen on a big screen and really heard with a proper sound system um, that so many people will now see on on a smaller scale. And it's just an interesting one because I think if I hadn't been involved in this project, I might think, oh, this is a little, this is a little intimate story. I think maybe this is one that that might fare pretty well on a small screen. Um, and I'm so glad you had a good reaction to it on a small screen. But um, but Mona's a filmmaker, a bit of a throwback filmmaker who understands that even the most intimate stories can also be like. Um, uh, have a kind of epic impact and and you know it really sort of raises up the lives of you know the unsung you know and so and so uh you know it's a just it's a it's just a i was so struck by it in the cinema how it worked and how good the you know sound design was and all that geeky stuff so anyway that's why i'm always asking people oh how did you see it but of course what can we do it's a global pandemic people will watch this on their computers or, or i will say uh if you live somewhere if you're listening to this podcast and you live somewhere where there's drive-ins uh go see mm. drive-in uh i actually have gone to more drive-ins over the past year than i i, I think i have since maybe i was a teenager and it's one of the things I so hope comes out of this pandemic that they really bring them back because aren't they amazing? They really are. And, and it's funny. There's even like, uh, I went to one drive-in where you could listen to it on your iPhone, your phone or iPhone. I think it was meant for iPhones and you uh-huh. could put in your, your AirPods and it was surround sound. Oh, wow. Wow. You're watching it and listening to it. Wow. Not, not all amazing. of them have that, but yeah. Um, it's just, it's been a great experience. I've even seen docs on, at a drive-in. Oh, interesting. And that was even a great experience. What was the takeaway from that? I know you're supposed to be interviewing me, but oh, this sure. is interesting um, to me. The takeaway was if, if it's compelling and it, it doesn't matter. Like, yeah. I, you know, I don't know if I would um, be excited to see a concert film, like on a, on a, on a big, on a, a driving screen, 
But, you know, I saw Boy State and I saw um, Totally Under Control, two great docs. And wait, I would, wait, wait. You're saying you wouldn't want to see Stop Making Sense in a drive-in? I think that would be really fun. Maybe if I could get out of my car. But if, if the idea is you can't get out of your car, I don't know I would. Maybe. Mm, I don't know. I'm not would want to get out of your car. Yeah. Yeah. And, you, and the whole idea is not to get out of your car. Right. But, um, <laughs> but uh, no, I mean, I, and, 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 and I, I, I hope they come back. I wish, I mean, I live in Los Angeles. I know you're in, you're in the UK. I think you're in the London, in London. I'm in the London. <laughs> in London. Um, I think the only bummer to me is that no one really took the um, initiative here to like recreate, to, to go and just invest in a, a high quality drive-in in the general LA area. You still gotta mm. check out a little bit. And I know like it's expensive, it, you know, it's, it's hard to find land and all that stuff. But I, I think that's the one sort of bummer through all this. I think everyone just keeps waiting. Oh no, they're gonna come back in another six months, another three months. And they will. And I'm very right. excited about right. You know, I, I cannot, I, you know, it's funny. I have, I'm not to not talk about the movies, but um, I have friends in distribution and they, you know, polls that they see, everything that tells them, you know, that, you know, when this calms down, people want to come back to the movies. And yeah. I am very much, if there's one light at the end of the tunnel is I'm very excited, hopefully this fall, to go to the movies every week and go to screenings and maybe go to a film festival and, and, have it be as close to normal as it can be. Yes, there's so much obviously that we're realizing we've taken for granted. And I think weirdly, one of them is the thing, one of the things we think we normally think we can't stand, which is <laughs> crowds of people together. <laughs> now we, we long for that. I mean, I haven't heard anyone say like, oh God, I really miss the back of it, you know, an economy seat on the back of the plane. But we, we do miss being together in the cinema, laughing with strangers or going to see live music, you know. Um, it's, it's, it's a strange thing to miss, I suppose, but my God, I really miss it. And, and I think it is, it is that there's an energy of the collective experience that you can't, you just can't have at home. I remember when we were in Venice in this strange little kind of, time out from the pandemic where obviously we were being really careful and everyone was socially distanced and we were all wearing masks but the, it was a massive theater and we had probably a third or a quarter of the, of the seats filled um but when when uh casey's character dyer falls ill at the beginning of the film and he coughed for the first time <laughs> the energy in that room you know, shared understanding and that um, a meaning to a cough that I don't think has ever been, you know, so palpable in the in the cinema um, as it is this year. And it was it was it was it was just that thing that you can't you can't get at home, which is something of the, that ineffable shared experience you know it's happening but what is it it's a vibe yeah. nobody made any noise you know it wasn't like everybody sort of sighed and understanding or something it was just a feeling um and yeah some of my best memories of watching films aren't just seeing the film but seeing the film in a crowd and i i i so miss that i miss that too i miss uh i miss films getting great great word of mouth because they're seen in a crowd 
And oh wow, sorry, we have a, a very loud. Uh, oh, that uh, reminds me of America. Yeah, going overhead. <laughs> which, by the way, in my neighborhood, rarely happens, so I'm not sure what was going on there. Um, but uh, wow. Um, okay. So, uh, but I, I, I do miss the the word of mouth buzz of, of yeah. people seeing films and telling friends because they were in an audience or you hearing about people being so moved that there's a standing ovation and I'm sure there's standing ovations at home and people, you know, go nuts about it. But um, I do think we're going to come back. I feel like there's hope. I, you know, just today we should, I, I should say, um, uh, Dr. Fauci uh, here in the U S was on the news and said that in April, uh, much sooner than people expect that, Everyone he expects should be able across the country should be able to get a vaccine if they want to, or at least get an appointment for one. And I wasn't expecting that. So, yeah. you know, um, hopefully good things are, are around the corner. Fingers crossed. Yeah. Um, but let's talk yeah. about this movie because I do feel when, when people see this, that they will love it. They will, uh, you know, share it and, and tell their friends to see it. How did um, this project even come your way? Um, I'd wanted to work with Mona for a long time. I'd been in touch with her and Brady and there, you know, we were sort of hoping to do something together someday. Um, so I'd never actually met her, but I was aware of her and, um, was really excited at the prospect of working with her. So the, the project came to me in a pretty, you know, in an uninteresting, straightforward way. I was just, um, sent the script um, and saw that she was involved and that Casey was involved and I saw the writer's names and I had that sinking feeling that you get every now and then when you just read the cover letter and you see interesting people are involved and it's a feeling of, I don't know, excitement and hope that this might be one of the interesting scripts, you know, um, that are so often few and far between. Um, and so I just impatiently waited as the little the little downloading circle went round and round. And <laughs> I was like halfway down the first page. I, I knew I, w I had to be in this film and that I, I would do it. And I obviously halfway down the first page, I didn't know the epic love story. I didn't know everything that I would have to do with, with this character, but um, there were a few things so gripping on that first page. Um, I learned a lot about the writers on that first page because mm -hmm. I knew uh, they gave me so much information about the character halfway down, halfway down the page. But, you know, I, I, it's a kind of efficiency that only really brilliant, talented writers um, can offer. Uh, and I later learned they spent 15 years working on the script and it, and it, that made sense to me. It, it feels like it's been whittled down to its sort of purest form. Um, they, these two guys, they know so much about this period, but it never feels like they're hammering it down our throats or showing off their knowledge. It's so like delicate, all the information, the details about the time are so subtly and delicately woven into the script. It's just a beautiful piece of writing. Um, but so one of the things on that first page was this line of voiceover that didn't end up in the film, but it directed me in a way before I even met Mona. And so contributed to my performance in the end, I think. And that line was, hmm. at night I often wonder if those who have been my intimates have found me to be a steep hill whose view does not repay the ascent. And <laughs> it just, it, you know, 
it was clear on the first page this was a sort of it was a grim unwelcoming landscape people there were living hard scrabble hand to mouth sort of lives and um given the this period you know it could be assumed and it, i suppose was later affirmed in the story that you know women didn't have much say in in the lives they led and i thought my god this woman she's kept up at night worrying about what which how she's failed those she loves and how, what she hasn't given rather than being kept up at night by any thoughts about what she hasn't gotten from life and i just i just thought that was so moving and it just got me really interested about her um later down the page there was something that she's described as an asset to dyer her husband and i thought oh i've never really thought about that word that's a very interesting word mm. um it has a lot of positive and negative connotations and um and and sure enough you know these were sort of hints at what the film would explore later about um responsibility to your partner intimacy marriage um guilt uh disappointment and all these things you know and um so anyway that's why i knew on the first page and i guess the rest is history so i want to come back to that point about the the asset but i should say for those listening who have not seen the film or, or seen a preview for it yet um it's set in uh the mid 1800s uh in upstate new york uh, and it, it, in, in the wilds of upstate New York, I, I should say. Um, and uh, uh, Catherine uh, plays Abigail, um, who is the wife uh, um, of Dyer, played by Casey Affleck. And uh, they have lost, you, you learn pretty early on that they, they've lost a child um, uh, a few years prior. Um, and, come, and a new couple sort of moves in, into the area and comes into the life. Uh, played by uh, Vanessa Kirby and um, Christopher Abbott. And as the film progresses, uh, Abigail um, gets into a relationship, uh, an unexpected relationship with um, Tally. Uh, and I, I, it's funny that you talk about the asset. I, I think one of the, film, the, the things about the film that struck me, I, I rewatched it this morning before we, we did this podcast, was, um, I don't want to spoil it, but you know, uh, Casey's character is, is in, in, in many ways enlightened for the time. Uh, and, uh, and, and it's funny that the word asset would be on that, the script, because watching the film, I didn't necessarily feel that he saw her that way. Um, it, do you think I just, I, I you know, I, I know that um, they, they run the farm together and he expects her to do stuff, but I didn't see it as an asset. I just thought, saw it more as, you know, he, you know, we're all in this together and, and, you know, we're, we're working hard to, to just survive. How, right. How but I mean, an asset could mean, you know, a, a plow is an asset to a farm, you know, um, how emotionally tied up he is and how he relies on her is, is sort of something that plays out later in the film. But, you know, I suppose, crucially, the writers didn't say Dyer yeah. perceives her as an asset. They said she is an asset. Oh, I'm sorry. So, yeah. you know, so I wonder if there's a, I don't know, maybe that's subtle, but I wonder if there's a distinction there that, you know, it was the writers telling me, you know, he, I don't know, what is it? Like, maybe something similar to one of Finney's lines, like a husband has certain expectations, you know, and I think 
you know, all of these rural partnerships were economic relationships. I think probably for the most case first, you know, you, you picked a spouse that was in good health and could farm their land and, you know, or if it was, you pick the woman because she's, um, again, hardy stock and, and can contribute. So, uh, so yeah. So, I mean, and think in that set sense, that's sort of the first way that you see that she's an asset to him. And actually, I suppose at the beginning of the film, you also see in the ways in which she isn't an asset to him that she's now so um, is debilitated in grief um, that she's um, that she's not maybe contributing in the ways that that he's used to her contributing that extends beyond the economic relationship, but just as you know, as a I don't know, attentive, loving spouse. Um, later in the film, there's a line, maybe he starts to feel that she is, he is, um, I don't know, losing her more than he'd already lost her at the beginning of the film. Mm. And he says to her, I would die without you. I always thought it, that was very interesting. And there's many lines like that in the film, which, you know, can be taken as an, um, as an expression of his emotions, his love for her, but could also be perceived in a much more literal sense. I, uh, you know, I rely on you here. Don't leave me here alone. I can't do this by myself. Um, and so there's these wonderful parallels between, um, or maybe perhaps even that they're hiding behind the economic relationship and they use that kind of language to express what they really feel, which is that, I can't do this life without you rather than I can't run this farm without you, but I'll speak about it in a way <laughs> where I can get away with it without, you know, maybe exposing too much. Yeah. I don't know. I think there's a lot uh, there, you know, so rich in, in an exploration of vulnerability and intimacy in that sense, you know, these people who, yes, in some ways he's rather a modern man, but he's also, and you know, in modern times today, we see people like this all the time. Um, we all are kind of um, pushed to the edge of our ability in relationships, right? Like it's challenging to communicate sometimes or to express our feelings and, and we all do um, fear revealing ourselves at times. So, you know, I think there's a lot within the film, too, that I found kind of overwhelmingly uh, applicable today and sort of, you know, you know, these sort of universal themes. And I also think it, it speaks to uh, Mona's direction. And we should say Mona Fastbold is, is the director of the film. Um, mm -hmm. And also the, the casting uh, and, and Casey's portrayal uh, of Dyer. Uh, I just, as opposed to the entire cast portrayals, you probably could have taken this script and, you know, directed it in a different way that would have made, just without changing anything on, on the page, the characters seem either um, even more cruel, you know, in the, in the case of Finney or, or even uh, less compassionate than Casey plays Dyer, I guess. Um, I, I, I did want to ask- Yes, that's right. I, I just to confirm that, you know, yeah. we were all using the script as a roadmap, but 
Mona's read of it was was um, was incredibly um, sensitive to what they had um, what they had put on the page and you know, we, 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 we all, we were so lucky. We all had the same take on it, which was that these are all really complex individuals and we should celebrate and show the complexity um, and risk that we might lose, uh, you know, that the audience won't be able to follow that nuance, but Mona was able to, you know, she, she took that risk and it, and I think it, I think it worked out, um, uh, you know, but I think, yeah, another another director might have been tempted to make it a little bit uh, more straightforward um, and sort of tell a story of two miserable men that, I don't know, drive their wives in away from them or something. Uh, but yeah, no, she was interested in the, in the detail and the complexity. And I think we all benefited from, from that. Yeah, and, and speaking of detail, I think one of the reasons why the entire film works is it feels authentic. It doesn't feel forced. It, it, it doesn't feel like someone's putting a modern um, storyline mm. or, 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 or themes of, um, you know, uh, self-determination or spousal abuse. You know, you can go on for a while about what all the things mm. are in the film, you know, on this period. I, I'm curious, you, you mentioned that the... the the screeners, screenwriters had worked on it for, for 15 years. When you found that out, did it make, and, and, you, and, the, and the script was so detailed, did you feel you needed to, to read the original novel? Uh, we should say the original novel um, of the same title was written by Jim Shepard. Was that something that you felt you needed to do? God, I don't really remember feeling I needed to do it. I read it so early, I was compelled to read it. I, I love, I mean, it's such a trait when you have more material to look to, you know, um, something might be expressed a little bit differently in the story and, you know, um, you might find something you can use. I, I think research is slightly, I've been, I think a little bit misunderstood in my profession over the years. It's sort of a way to show off what a serious actor you are or something. <laughs> but, but actually, the reason why people do it isn't, um, isn't because they're more serious than the next guy. You know, uh, another actor might just really um, be so imaginative and not need anything to get in their way in a way and, and, and turn out and, you know, work just as hard and turn out a wonderful performance without it. Um, I like it just because it uh, um, sets can be quite chaotic. There's a lot of pressure. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of distractions um, and certain little gems of ideas um, can be really easy to remember and sort of latch on to, to um, kind of bring like sort of ground me in the, the world of the story. And I don't know, usually if a script's really good so much the page will do that for you just rereading the scene and it kind of centers you and brings you in but sometimes that's not enough and you can use these ideas you've stumbled upon in research to anchor you in the world of the story and so why am I ranting about research well it was funny oh oh so that includes reading the short story right anything else any little detail about the character or something 
that can be really useful. So I just went to read it right away, like right after reading the screenplay, just because I was, was eager to get to work. Um, and now I can't, it all melds together so much. I can't remember what I took from, from the story, uh, but it was very, very helpful. That's for sure. As were like a number of other books that the writers, because they are both um, historical fiction writers, they had loads of really esoteric niche stuff for me, <laughs> for me to read, like the book of the farm and the great storms of New England. And, you know, so, so yeah, I had a, I had a fun time delving into this world. When you, when you thought about Abigail, when you were, you were playing her in, in the story, did you feel like she'd had feelings for other women before, or was this a, someone came into her life and it, there was just an attraction and, uh, you know, uh, a feeling there that hadn't been there? I was never really, I don't know why, I just was, ne that question never occurred to me. I was never interested in that question mm. i think it's an interesting question now for audiences to ask and it almost has nothing to do with me they come you know those are the wonderful conversations people have after they see a movie what who do you think these people were and you know what do we think their backgrounds were and all that you know it, it feels sort of like it's not for me to involve myself with those kinds of questions but i did think just on, based on how the love story was written and all the information we had about the way she talks about her marriage, how she never really thought he was, you know, most suitable guy for her, but, but, you know, he was the oldest son of the, you know, on the neighboring farm and, you know, that's how things worked. Essentially she's describing an arranged marriage, but she did, she is fortunate. He's a nice man, you know, but yeah. I, all of that made me think. And the way that the love story read made me think this is someone who's never been in love before. Um, and so I think, you know, I always thought this is very much the story of a first requited love and there's you know um there's something so exquisite about that always um and um yeah so that i did think about that quite a lot about what it is to fall in love and and fall in love for the first time and and discover for the first time that everything you're going through is reciprocated um it's it you know it it, it, that played heavily for me and you know it's in the end you know when when tally writes that one letter um that that she beautifully narrates um that vanessa beautifully narrates um she says that something like the way you um yeah, I, the way you looked at me when you knew that you were loved and that line, that line haunted me and uh, really intimidated me in terms of playing the first scene where, where I know that I'm loved, which is the, you know, one where I end up on the back, you know, lying back on the table, not to give too much away. Mm. But, um, you know, uh, just to just, it was felt really important to the film that, um, uh, um, that I embody that moment, you know, whatever that means. Like, I guess it's just a snooty way of saying it was really important that I felt like I got that right. So yeah, that, that 
That's a stressful one. <laughs> I think that's duty. I think anyone, any actor, anyone in any position, creative, wants to make sure that they are authentic and, and they get it right. Yeah, I think the back. reason why I didn't want to say get it right is because I don't really know what that is. Like, yeah. I, or I'm not, I, or almost maybe I hate that notion. Like, I'm not trying to get anything right. I'm just trying to get it, um, uh, so embedded in my system that it it feels it feels true i guess i guess it's not about you know because right feels inherently wrong if you're thinking about truth you know if the audience what i mean to say is if the audience is thinking wow she really nailed that then i think i haven't done a good job because they shouldn't be thinking about how i performed it they should be in the moment <laughs> with us right yeah. So I'm trying for something else and and it's it's that whatever that thing is I'm trying for is is the sole reason why I do this and why I know it'll be interesting for me for the rest of my life because it's something to you kind of can't stop chasing. Absolutely. And and I, I'm curious, you know, you uh you, you talk about not not wanting that to to, to worry about getting it right. Can you watch yourself on screen? Can you watch yourself in context of a project you've done and feel satisfaction from it? Or is it, you know, I did what I did and hopefully it's, it's good. And even if I, I still look at it and it doesn't seem right, it, you know. Yeah. It's uh, a funny one. Cause some, you know, it's not my favorite pastime. It's pretty hellacious. You know, it's just, it's just like hearing your voice recorded but worse <laughs> um, on the one hand. But I think sometimes, I guess I have felt a kind of satisfaction when you know, certain movies or certain scenes that you feel that, um, you feel that the collaboration really worked. Mm. Where you feel what I was trying to do, what they were trying to do, was understood by the director and the under, and the director because he or she understood what we were trying to do. Uh, uh, knew because they understood how, what we were trying to do. They 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 knew how to film it. They knew how to catch it. They knew how to observe it. Um, because sometimes somebody has something really interesting to do, but the director doesn't know what it is. So they don't know how to watch it, if that makes any sense. And it kind of gets lost. Like a camera will pan away from someone when I'm like, oh my God, I just want to see the rest of what they were going to do there or whatever it is. Um, or the cut will happen at a time where um, I don't understand why they would do it there or something. But sometimes, yeah, the collab, the collaboration just works that everybody has the same idea about the script and the director catches the moment the way that we felt it was happening or the way I saw it in my head. Um, and you see that and it just feels, it feels, feels wonderful. But then sometimes the director does something that you don't, you didn't see in your head at all. And that's also what that can be very interesting. And you know, they surprise you and, and, um, and that can be, that can be fascinating and it gets me really interested in all that goes on in post-production. But if I'm saying what, what has felt most satisfying, it'll probably, it is probably like in this film, the first time that Vanessa and I look at each other, that felt so important to the telling of this story, what we were carrying in that moment of, it was really about recognizing 
a shared grief, a shared um, experience of life that was um, painful and disappointing and frustrating and sad, you know, and that they never had anybody who they could share that with. And then, whoa, there's some, suddenly there's someone there who gets it and gets, you know, that that moment had to be more than a love at first sight, but a recognition. Um, uh, and, and I really thought what, what is in the film is what I thought, you know, just what I thought it should be. So that felt good. And I, and, and our first, and then that, the first, the requited love scene, you know, that those are always fun too, when you're kind of in a two shot, maybe I like them because I'm, you know, started in the theater and it just, <laughs> there's no bullshit going on, you know, both of those actors are there. That moment happened exactly like that. There's no manipulation. And, and, you know, those, those, those scenes can be quite um, pleasing to see, I guess, but once to be clear, like one time and never again, like, I'm not going to see this film again. I've seen it. I saw it at Venice. I'm good. I'm so impressed with Mona and I'm so proud to be a part of it, but I, I'm, I'm okay. <laughs> well, you, well uh, I totally understand that. And I, I, you know, before we wrap up the podcast, uh, this is an awkward pivot, but I have to ask, um, are you still shooting uh, Fantastic Beasts? Are you almost done? Um, and is there anything you could tease, even just one word to describe uh, the third installment? Um, I, I'm, I... I think that there, I, I don't know what happened. Somebody got COVID, so they stopped. But I didn't know about that until I read about it online because nobody told me. <laughs> um, but uh, I think I have one one more little thing to do on it. Uh, I, I'm trying to think of a tease. I'm probably the wrong person to ask, but um, maybe, maybe, uh, maybe I can say that there there's there's snow in it <laughs> you know, just like you would feel like someone's gonna kill you when you, you answer a question about these films you know what i mean like you feel like there's a hitman in your backyard or something you know it's, it's like, it's there's a new now. it's a, there's a there's a new aesthetic it, it there, there's snow. well i i don't know there might be an old aesthetic i'm trying to remember i'm i'm not i'm not saying anything okay but at least we know that you, you've still got you've still got a bit more to do um and and, uh, or at least you think you do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that works. That's right. That works. That's right. Um, so at the end of every podcast, we ask four quick questions. Uh, they're just meant off the top of your head. Um, yeah. And the first question is, if you were not an actress, what do you think you would be doing for a living? I know, you, these are supposed to be like quick fire questions. Off the um, top of your head, yeah. Well, I'm just trying to think of an answer that's outside of show business because it's so lame to say no, it can be, show it can business. Be, you could be like, I want to be a costumer. I want to. I want to direct. I want to write. Like it, it's. It's just if you were not an actress. I think. I think I'd really like to be an editor in another life, but I also think this is quite similar perhaps to being an actor. Maybe, I don't know if that's true, but maybe, maybe a couples counselor. 
because I think couples counselors are are like the heroes of our of our time, you know, especially these days, I'm sure. And I think it would be quite I think it would be quite fascinating to help hold sort of maybe hold some people together and and also just, you know, I have a friend who says like uh, the two things that are a mystery are other people's relationships and their finances. You know, and and I, I would love to get I you know it's what I do for a living, but I would love to get into the mystery, you know, get behind the mystery of all the relationships. I suppose it's what you don't want in a therapist is just to feel like they're really nosy and um just want want the dirt on your life. But yeah, well, there must be know. something about. I, th- I think it, yeah. it's it's maybe not what I'd want to do now, but I think when I think of re- if I were to ever retire. I think it would be fun to either become an editor or or a couples counselor. It's it's about it's sort of thinking about you know you know the late the later years. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Listen, uh we all have Wait. many lives in our lives, so you never know what's going to happen. You never know. You never, you never know. know. Um so next question, what's the best concert or live experience uh, live music experience that you remember? Uh, do I remember seeing music at this point? <laughs> uh, well, it is so hard to choose. I, I've had so many really wonderful ones. Um, this is so random but i think the best thing that ever happened was at one time i was in a cave somewhere in utah perhaps um and and sean marshall cat power was was playing her guitar but it was just for a few people in this cave And, and, and somehow I was one of those people. Um, and that was, you know, a once in a lifetime experience that I, I will never forget. And that's what it's about. That's, it's about having those experiences, those, th- th- those, whether it's a concert with a hundred thousand people or something like that. That's amazing. Um, next question is, uh, what's the last series or program you completely binge watched? Meaning you just didn't watch one or two episodes. You watched the entire thing. I think that I have only watched, I have an answer and I just finished it. And I, but I think it's the only thing that I've ever watched. I, maybe I'm wrong about this, but I think it's the only thing that I've watched like a whole, a whole series. I, I have a really, I'm, I'm the opposite of a binge watcher. I can't watch TV. I, I really, I've missed so much great stuff because of this, this flaw in my personality. Um, but I just watched The Sopranos. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, That's a lot. That's a lot to catch up on. Yeah. I think it took a really, it took basically the whole year. Um, so I guess that doesn't really count as binge watching. Uh, but, uh, it was very violent. (laughs) (laughs) It Uh, wasn't really... I wasn't really prepared for it, um, but it was, it, it really made me homesick. There's so many brilliant New York theater actors that come through that show. And, yes. and yeah, it, it was, it was, 
an arduous experience, but I'm glad I got, I'm glad I did it. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, it's a classic and uh, I'm glad you got to see it too. Um, and last but not least, uh, when the pandemic is over, if you could leave your home apartment house, wherever you are right now, go straight to the airport and get on a plane and go anywhere in the world, where would you go? New York. <laughs> you miss New York? Uh, yes, that's my home. Forever it will be, you know. Um, and it's got all these people in it that I miss so much. Uh, but I mean, it's a sort of lame answer. I mean, this is a fucking global pandemic. I mean, maybe maybe if, if, if money is no object and we're really fantasizing, then I just, being that it is the dead of winter in London, <laughs> which isn't, isn't a dream <laughs> uh maybe i would just take all all the people i really like which let's face it isn't that many people and put them on the caribbean island somewhere that that would be fine as well listen uh other other guests have even just said you know going home to the middle of the country so uh there is no right or wrong answer people um, have said the midwest wow yeah people were like i just want to go home with no, my okay. family I'm yeah like, oh, that's great i get it that's awesome but isn't it funny because pre-pandemic, nobody wanted to see their family. You know, no. you talk about, oh God, the holidays and we have to go home and how do I get in and get out? And, and now it's, it's interesting. I think it's, it's brought all these things into sharp relief. We, we've been so wrong about dreading crowds and avoiding family. And actually we, we miss the crowd and we even miss our families. <laughs> it's funny. I, I think I miss the crowds, but I also feel like it's going to be a little bit of PTSD with the it's be jarring. Yeah. It's going to be jarring. Um, I find know. that when I watch films and I see a crowd in the yes. films, have you had that experience? I'm like, what? something's wrong here. Why are they all together? I gotta be honest, you know, I, I just watched a bunch of films at, at Sundance and uh, through the, through the festival. And they were all shot within the last year and a half. And I'd be like, why aren't they wearing masks? Why are they not like, <laughs> why are they, why are they doing that? It was just, it was yeah. a little, because it's new it's content. stressful. Yeah. Yeah. And you're like, were they They're safe? super spreaders. What are they doing? No, no. It's more like, yeah. were they safe when they were shooting this? Like, yeah, exactly. There, you know, like it's, I think it's also being in the business a bit too much, knowing what it's like to be on a set and where they are. And I'm like, wow. I mean, I know they shot this in the pandemic, but like, was the same like I it it does take you a little out of it, which is why it's you have to sort of concentrate at times. Whether you're just a viewer or a critic or just anyone trying to enjoy something, be like, forget what's going on, just enjoy it for what it is. That and, is so interesting. I haven't watched anything made during the pandemic. I'm sure I'm going to have the same response. You might, you might not. Um, okay. But anyway, Catherine, I have to tell you, thank you so much for, for taking the time and congratulations on the movie. I, I do feel like um, you will be uh, having people ask you about this film and saying that it moved them very much uh, for years to come. And oh. I, I do really appreciate you taking the time to talk about it. Oh, it's great talking to you. Thanks a lot.